This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live.
This episode of Teachers Talk Radio has been made possible with support from Witherslack Group, the UK's leading provider of SEN education and care. They're here to support you too through an ever-growing offer of free resources, including webinars, podcasts, articles and events aimed at supporting teaching professionals like you. Visit their website at www.withaslackgroup.co.uk to find out more. Imagine a world where you were free to focus on sparking curiosity in your students and giving them access to the awe and wonder of learning. A world where you were supported to deliver a truly personalised education to help all your learners achieve their potential. No need to imagine it, because that's exactly what the Oxford Smart Curriculum Service delivers. Seamlessly integrating curriculum, resources, assessment, next steps and professional development, every component of Oxford Smart is connected and working to provide you with a uniquely coherent and responsive service that empowers you and your students with transformational effect. The Oxford Smart Curriculum Service. When everything connects, anything is possible. Stevewoods.co.uk for educational support in IT and computer science. Coming up, I'm delivering a number of courses. Learn to program in Python is a free one-hour course designed to start you on your way into Python coding. Everything works in a browser, so there's nothing to install beforehand. Join me remotely to learn the basics on Wednesday the 8th of June, 4 o'clock to 5 o'clock. Visit stevewoods.co.uk to start your journey. Are you a state school teacher in England? Why not be a hero this half-term and join me for two days and receive up to 1,360 £60 in bursary. Terms and conditions apply. Find out more at stevewoods.co.uk. If you're listening to this, then we know we share one thing in common. A passion for the type of outstanding education that every child deserves. That's what makes us the leading provider of specialist education and care. We need people like you to help us achieve even more. With us, you'll be given all the resources and support you need, offered a clear path to career progression, and be rewarded with some of the best salaries and benefits the industry has to offer. We are Witherslack Group. If you'd like to find out more, we'd love to hear from you. Visit www.witherslackgroup.co.uk forward slash careers and be part of our future. This is Teachers Talk Radio and this is Teachers Talk Radio News with Gail Glenn. Chancellor and Richmond MP Rishi Sunak is set to pay £63,000 in private school fees for his two daughters next year. The senior boarding school his daughter will attend in September is to see fees increase to £41,250, taking the household education bill to £63,000. Last month, Mr Sunak, who is a millionaire, donated £100,000 to his former boarding school, Winchester College. The money funds bursaries for children whose parents would otherwise not be able to afford to send them to the school, where Mr Sunak was head boy. Winchester College charges £43,335 per year.
In Scotland, First Minister Nicola Sturgeon is facing pressure to fund universal free school meals for secondary school pupils, as the Bank of England warns that supermarket bills and other household costs will continue to rocket until the end of the year. This will drive thousands of parents and carers below the poverty line. Leslie Davidson, who runs a Loaves and Fishes food bank, has seen unprecedented demand from parents, terrified of having to send children to school on an empty stomach. She said, Providing a meal for all primary and secondary children at school is a no-brainer. It is the most fundamental responsibility of government to make sure children are not going hungry. Scottish Labour MSP Monica Lennon said, No child should be going hungry in a country as rich as ours. Expanding access to universal free school meals will reduce child poverty and stop hunger holding back the next generation. With the cost of living crisis hitting families hard, I am proud to have taken the argument for expanding universal free school meals to the Scottish Parliament because our ambitions for children and young people should not stop at the primary school gates. This has been your latest Teachers Talk Radio News with Gail Glenn. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, this week I'm going to talk about spreadsheet modelling. Spreadsheets are marmite. You either love them or you hate them. This week, I hope to help you see a reason to include them in your next lesson or even to spice up a form time. What is technology? It's anything that helps us in life. For example, scissors, cutlery, even a paper straw. Let's take a look at the good old paper straw. Build as an environmental hero. It's time for the spreadsheet to model some facts about paper straws. Before I begin, I totally get the paper straws are better for the environment than plastic. This episode's about looking deeper into topics at pace, using the all-powerful spreadsheet to provide high-speed and sometimes complex calculations. With a trusty search engine by my side, here I go into what is the true cost of a paper straw. Okay, the first answer to produce a paper straw costs a penny. Now how about how many paper straws are used in a year? The US use 5 million per day. Europe, a mere 7 million per day. How many trees is that? Right, a typical straw weighs 1.1 grams. So times 7 million is 7,700,000 grams divided by 1,000 is 7,700 kilograms divided by 1,000 again is 7.7 tons. Back to the search engine, it takes 24 trees to make one ton of paper. So, 185 trees rounded to the nearest tree. It takes eight trees to provide enough oxygen for one person for a year. So each day we kill enough trees to keep 23 people alive for a year for the sake of a paper straw. Let's take a quick step back. 185 trees per day times 365 days is 67,452 trees per year. That can keep 8,431 people alive. 
In a densely packed forest, that's around one kilometre square of trees. It takes, on average, 15 years for a tree to grow to be used for paper. People of Europe are spending 27,830,000 per year on paper straws. That's £76,246 a day. If you listen to this on Friday, since Monday, 925 trees have been used for a one-use purpose. Now, with the power of the mighty spreadsheet and a few questions, I'll be leaving that straw behind and drinking from the cup. Do you want to add to my argument or even challenge it? Want to get in touch on the TT Radio 2022 Twitter feed? Follow us and tell us what you want to know about tech. I'm Steve Woods, and that was Two Minute Tech. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods. Your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Can you hear me, Martin? I can hear you. Yes, sorry, it all went quiet for a second. I don't know if that was... No, no, it's... Uh, I've been having some very strange issues with my my um, computer. Uh, and sometimes when I come back from the news, it goes completely quiet. So I have to then call in as a guest from my phone, which is very, very strange. Oh, so I sit in there saying... Can you hear me, Martin? I can hear your mouth. Can you hear me? But obviously nobody could hear me because I'd just gone away to the news. I came back and suddenly there I wasn't there anymore and it went quiet. There was a lovely period of about 35 seconds where nobody could hear anything. But anyway, we're here Excellent. now. Hello. Hello. How are you doing? I'm, I'm very well, thanks. That's got to be the strangest introduction I've ever done of all time. Um, it felt like one of those awful Zoom calls where you're not really sure if anyone can hear you. And it's just like, can, can you hear me? Can, can you hear me? No, you couldn't hear me, which is why you weren't responding. And I was like, I can hear your mouse. But yeah. Hi there, Martin. Lovely to have you on. Um, really nice to be on. Thanks for inviting me. It's an absolute pleasure. I've been, I've been very excited about this for a little while, to be honest. Um, mostly because I'm ready to learn loads because I don't know enough about dyslexia um, and I certainly don't know enough about dyslexia in ELT and I think it's something that most people don't know enough about within ELT. Would that yeah, be a fair yeah, thing absolutely. to say? 
Absolutely. And there are almost no training modules for ELT teachers. So when you, when you take your, your, your Delta or your Kelta, there's no, uh, almost no training modules in dyslexia either. So it's something that teachers are kind of faced with at the, at the coalface uh, when, they, when they get there. And there's no training, there's no awareness. Recognizing dyslexic learners might be impossible depending on the, the context you're teaching in. Um, dealing with dyslexic learners is, is terrifying if you don't know how to do it and you think you're frightened you might do the wrong thing. So, yeah, it's a huge issue for ELT. It really is. I mean, there have been some advances recently, obviously, um, with um, This Is English, I saw here, uh, Bolo van der Poel. I'm not sure if you, if you know him. He's, he's Bolo, uh, yeah. I, yes, I'd like exactly. to say that he's, uh, he, he did This Is English because uh, we worked together, and, and I'm pleased to say I inspired him to start This Is English. So uh, Well, there you go. That was, you are making waves, obviously. Um, and Bulo is, saw... is an excellent man. He, he keeps winning awards for what he does, and, and quite rightly, he's, he's a exactly fantastic Exactly that. Guy. I saw him, I saw Bulo at the, the uh, for say, where he won an award for This Is English, and ah. I think they have, they have 40 dyslexic students next year, and, and yeah. it's things like this that, that are obviously making a difference, but it is the kind of, the, the layman, uh, as it were, you know, the, 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 every, the everyday ELT teacher that is faced with with this kind of this terrifying prospect as you know yeah. um, as awareness is slowly increasing but i i don't know i i put a, a story on about what i had done when you know i was a, a brand new teacher um a, many a year ago um and i had a student a, a neurodivergent student that I, I was not aware um and i just got to the point of you know he was just he was a bit slow he couldn't really keep up and i just kind of i wrote him off for the entire year, like I, I look back on it with absolute horror, um, because about a year or so later he was diagnosed with dyslexia, and you know I, I went to university with one of my housemates was uh, had dyslexia, and 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 I didn't recognise it, I didn't see it, and I just saw him as being you know a bit slow and a bit troublesome, and you know kind of just kind of tried to just muddle on through with it. It's, it's very common indeed, and even the language we use. I mean, we, we use sort of phrases like he was a bit slow and actually the kind of we could use different phrases. We could say um, he didn't learn at the speed I taught or he was really quick at this and I, I was I was too quick at that. And, and so, exactly you know, when, when we use this language, the, the, the whole of the language, so there's a train going by. When we use this language, the whole of the language we use is is it shows implicit bias it shows value judgment and and when we have this implicit bias when we have this value judgment um it actually has a, a measurable effect on the students we have and this is fascinating and um, there was a about 15 years of research that was synthesized by the university of birmingham i believe in 2017 and it showed that essentially there are um there are four ways that dyslexic people label themselves or that people label dyslexic people Mm -hmm. um, and these four ways can be roughly characterized as patient, student, hemispherist, and campaigner. And this is fascinating. So okay. patients are those people who label dyslexia as things like a learning disability or as a cognitive misfunction or as something that needs to be treated or even in some countries cured. If you go to, I think, five countries in the European Union look at dyslexia as something that's, cure, uh, that's not curable. They, they look at it as medical. So that's the, uh, the, the categorization patient. The next categorization is very, very common. It's student. And that is someone with dyslexia has 
difficulties reading, difficulties writing, slow processing speed, uh, that kind of thing. And so we talk about the, the, the things they struggle with when they're learning. So I have, I, I, I have difficulties writing sentences. I have difficulties transcribing. I have, I have problems copying, that kind of thing. So this is what we call, this label is the student label. The hemispherist label is essentially that, that label that says, okay, people with dyslexia have different neurology, they have a different processing, different way of processing information, they have a different way of thinking. And the campaigner label is those people who look upon the world as needing to accommodate dyslexics, essentially. So, so if you're like, if, if, if you're in a wheelchair, obviously the people will, the world will need to create um, ramps and accessible, um, accessible corridors. Same for dyslexia. So the campaigner label is for those people who think that the world needs to accommodate dyslexics. What's really interesting is of these four labels, the first two, the, the patient and the student, um, people who labeled themselves, and that's partly because they were labeled by others, but people who labeled themselves as patient or student had noticeably lower learning and mental health outcomes than people who labeled themselves hemispherists or campaigners. And so this kind of value judgment that's factored into the way we talk about dyslexia actually has an effect on how they learn. 100% I can absolutely see why as well because when you know when you were describing those the first two are inherently negative. Yeah. You know they, these are it's it's a bad thing that you know either you struggle on with or you find a way of getting around it those and it has that kind of Yeah that immediate negative effect and I, I even remember my my housemate uh when I was at university so this was you know 20 years ago uh the, the way he was accommodated was he got an extra you know 20 percent of time at the end of his exam that was literally it oh, that was literally what he got that, that, that was... drives me mad that drives me mad Here, here's why and a couple of reasons first of all um, actually, let's say let's divide this into three reasons first of all I'm dyslexic as someone with dyslexia the last thing I want is another 20 minutes of that thing that stresses me out. If you're like an exam, it's a horribly stressful thing. The, what, the things people ask me to do in exams are not appropriate for the, for, for the way that I think. And so if you're going to make me sit an extra 20 minutes in one of these exams, it's going to make me feel worse. I don't want to sit for an extra 20 minutes. I don't want to be there at all. So asking me to sit there for, for longer is horrible. Second thing is if people genuinely think that an extra 20 minutes in an exam is appropriate, then why don't you give people an extra third for each lesson that you give them? If they think that you need extra time in an exam, why not give them extra time for teaching? Because if you think that people with dyslexia are going to require, let's say, 20% extra for, for, for one task, that is the task of, of, of giving out information, why doesn't that imply you think that 20% extra for giving them the information would also be appropriate. And, and the third thing, really, there's something called the, uh, the Matthew effect. And the Matthew effect essentially says that, if you like, the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. So the mm -hmm. gap between the rich and the poor grows. So let's say if, if, uh, if I start off with 10 pounds and you start off with 100 pounds, and we each increase our wealth by 10%, then I end up with 11 pounds, you end up with 110 pounds or whatever it is. And then Absolutely, we increase yeah. our wealth again and again and again. I will end up after about a year of this with 25 pounds and you'll end up with 1,000 pounds, something like that. And so th this, th this works with education as well. 
So if I, as a dyslexic person, take in, let's say, one unit of education, uh, one unit of education for every hour that I spend reading, and non-dyslexic people take in three units of education for every hour they spend reading, then the more we keep doing this, the further behind I fall. By the time we get to the exam at the end, it makes no difference if you give me 20% extra, because I've already been failed. The people who are educating me have already, <laughs> have already failed me. Absolutely. And that is that is the thing that like it, it returns to haunt me, you know, on a very frequent basis. Um, I went to a, a talk at IATEFL about inclusive learning and we were talking about neurodivergent students. And it just like came back to me that, you know, that the way that I'd, you know, labeled and treated that student, you know, no, no, no excuses. I, I was a new teacher. It wow. was it was the, the way I kind of saw it. And it was the lack of training, I guess. But again, it's. You know, you realise that you failed that student, and there's, you know, as a decent teacher, you don't want to be failing any student for for any reason. I I try not to lay blame on individuals. I don't think it's it's it was you as a as a teacher who'd failed the student. It was the fact that no one had had educated you about what dyslexia is. I mean, how could you possibly not behave differently towards that student if you'd not been given? any training, any education, any awareness. It's not your fault, it's the structure, the, the system that we educate with it, people within that essentially leaves neurodivergent students behind and, and thinks about them as an afterthought. Exactly that, exactly that. Now, so, so what I'd like to do now um, for those people listening, um, the first question, an obvious yes. question. I don't know how we've taken this long to get to it. <laughs> After ten minutes, um, let's do the yeah, first question. Yeah. <laughs> what What is dyslexia? What is it? Ah, this is a fa now. This is one of my favourite questions. It really is. Um, I'm running a, a running. I'm very heavily involved with a project. It's a very it's a very communitarian thing, very collaborative thing. Very heavily involved with a project called the Dyslexia Compass, and the Dyslexia Compass seeks to translate and align international measurements of dyslexia. And to do that, one of the things we've done is we've, uh, we, we've collected international descriptions of dyslexia. Now, okay. simply, from, um, simply from the European Union or, or from Europe, uh, we've got like six different, uh, uh, essentially six different descriptions of dyslexia. Um, one which talks about a learning difference, one which talks about a cluster of difficulties. Um, that, uh, the British Psychological Society, for instance, talks about it as a, a disability. European Dyslexia Association talks about it as a disorder. International Dyslexia Association talks about, talks about it as a disability, etc., etc., etc. And what you find is that depending on where you come from, your understanding of dyslexia will be, will be different from other people who come from different countries. Because generally speaking, uh, British practitioners see dyslexia in the way that the British Dyslexia Association defines it. Um, mm -hmm. People in, in Europe often see it in the way that the European Dyslexia Association finds it or in the way that the Interna International Dyslexia Association defines it. So our definitions of dyslexia are actually relative to the cultures and the countries and the context we come from. And oh, that's wow. fascinating. Uh, and not only that, not, not, not only are we talking about the definitions, but we're talking about what people are looking for. So um, we found that in Austria, for instance, uh, the focus is on behavioral disorders. Um, in Croatia, it's on phonological memory. Uh, in, uh, in, in Romania, it's, it's, it's on basically whether, whether students are aware of how far back they're falling, that kind of thing. 
And so different countries look at look at dyslexia, uh, sort of define dyslexia differently, and then understand that definition differently as well. So it's not only the def the definition; you can have different people using the same definition who understand the terms of the definition differently. Generally, we talk about dyslexia as a phonological deficit. That is, when you read um, when you read words, the little marks on a piece of paper, can you hear them? So that's phonological okay. decoding, but not all dyslexia. So there's something called dysidetic dyslexia, where people actually ha don't have deficient phonological decoding at all. Um, one of the things about dyslexia is, is often people with dyslexia have executive function differences. So they, they look at left and right, backwards and forwards. They look at time differently. They, their, their secretary who lives inside them or their personal assistant functions differently from other people's secretaries and other people's personal assistants. And this is what we call executive function. So there's a whole host of things, things like working memory. Can you remember what somebody, uh, what you've seen written on a board and then write it down on a piece of paper? People with working memory um, um, issues will find it difficult to see if you've written down something on a, on a whiteboard, to look at that whiteboard, effectively put the words in their memory look at a piece of paper and transfer them onto the piece of paper. That's going to be a struggle for people with working memory issues. Um, people with rapid naming issues, if you want them to, to think of the name for, I don't know, if you show them a picture of an elephant, will they be able to think of the word elephant uh, quickly or accurately? This is rapid naming. And so there's a whole cluster of, of issues, including things like, by the way, um, studies have shown that people with dyslexia are noticeably better at creativity tasks. They've noticed that people with dyslexia are noticeably better with visualization tasks. They've noticed oh, wow. that people with dyslexia have noticeably better abilities to, to, to think in three dimensions, whatever. And, and I can go for hours about what that means. So we talk about, yes, there are deficits. Yes, there are positives. The way that we describe dyslexia, therefore, depends on the countries we come from because of the, 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 the organizations who those countries rely on give their own definitions that is absolutely fascinating like i, I feel like i've just learned more in, in the last 90 seconds um <laughs> than, than i ever have before like it's absolutely fascinating to hear that the way that it, it can be done looked at so differently in so many different places and i, I remember all, all I, I ever heard yeah. of you know in terms of dyslexia was you know, they find it hard to read because the the, the words jump around on the page. That was, that's, uh, and that's not that's, even true. And that's not even true. That's the level of, of you know, of training I, I, I received in terms yeah. of being a teacher. Yeah. And it drives me mad because words jumping around on a page isn't dyslexia. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a cousin of dyslexia. Let's, let's say that. It's something called Erland syndrome or Myers-Erland syndrome. Uh, and it's a visual processing um, issue, whereas dyslexia is a cognitive processing issue. It's a different thing. And, and where people have looked upon dyslexia as words jumping around, as soon as they do that, they're looking in the wrong direction for how to deal with dyslexics, because they're looking in visual di directions rather than cognitive directions. Oh, my gosh, you've, you've absolutely like, blown my mind in, in like I say, in, in two minutes. Um, it's, it's something that is is so misrepresented. Um, I mean, yeah. even, I, I have a I have a friend who's who's teaching in a primary school here, and he has four dyslexic students in his class, um, which, which 
He's never, never, ever had to any kind of. He's never had to teach or know that he is teaching a, a dyslexic student. So suddenly he's in his first year in a school. He's been a teacher for 15 years, but, you know, we live in Spain. So getting into the school system is difficult. And he's got four dyslexic students in his class. And literally three days before he starts, they're like, you have to go on a training course. And they've actually gone and given him some training in how, you know, to teach properly. So he's spent 15 years as a teacher in in ELT and he gets into the school system where he is effectively you know an ELT teacher he's there to teach English as a second mm. language and he's been given some form of training at the very least straight away um so yeah he's been kind of my go-to in terms of of, of you know what to talk about what to do um so I'd like to know um how can we as teachers recognize um a dyslexic student what 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 do we need to look out for because as the kind of you know we're the people that are with students the most you know we're there when students are reading we're there when students are are performing these the these these functions we're there when we're writing on the board um it it can't be all palmed off onto parents you know not all parents spend time with their students, their students, their children doing these different <laughs> activities. So, yeah, I sometimes treat my daughter as a student. Um, how can we as teachers recognise? How can we see this um, and, you know, approach it with our with our students? There's essentially three ways which I, I would I would say this is the, the these three ways are, the, are your doorway to understanding dyslexia. The first thing is to me, the most crucial thing. So what we know is that dyslexia, where you want to think of it in terms of a, a, of a difficulty. So I, I don't say that I necessarily do, but there are difficulties associated with dyslexia, certainly. Dyslexia is what they call a specific learning difficulty. Now, that's a really important thing to know, because what it means is that there are specific problems that people with dyslexia will have. They might have advantages in other areas or, or whatever, but there are so certain specific problems. These problems tend to be, as I said, in terms of working memory and literacy and and that sort of thing. Well, because it's a specific learning difficulty, that means it's really easy to to make that first tell, to see that first tell. And that first Mm -hmm. tell is the difference between whether a student is generally bright and what they're producing. So if a student, so I, I look back at myself as a, as, a, as a student at school. No one found out I was dyslexic till I was 30. But when wow. I was at school, I was, yeah, I know, yeah. Whereas at school, I, was, I would like to think of myself in terms of my ability to converse with people, my interactions with people, my ideas. I was generally a bright student, but I was the bottom of the class and everything. And that difference between being bright or having normal intelligence and not managing to produce what you want people to produce that's a tell it's that discrepancy between if you're like normal intelligence and but why aren't they doing this often it's 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 labeled as laziness or it's labeled as could try harder actually that laziness that could try harder most of the time that's not laziness or could try harder at all something's going on so oh that's the first thing i can't the second sorry, sorry thing to interrupt at, you before the second yeah. thing um can i, I just mm. want to bring it back to the you didn't you didn't find out until you were 30 so your yeah. entire school life your entire university life and a large portion of your working life you were labeled with could try harder 
basically. Oh God, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I didn't get to university till I was 23 because I'd failed and been held back a year and dropped out and held back. A year. And, and, you know, so so if like, I got to university through sheer stubbornness as much as anything else, um, because I was the bottom of the class in everything at school. I mean, if I received a C in, in, a, in a test, I was over the moon. And a C when I was at school, it, you know, the, the, the 80s was considered just enough. It was considered adequate. And so imagine the, the, the psychological effect that celebrating adequacy has on a child. Yeah, that's, that's that is, harsh. It is horrifying, Martin. It's absolutely horrifying. I'm, I'm sitting here like holding my head in amazement and like, and and shame at the education system for, for you know <laughs> letting it letting it go by. So, I'm, I'm going to get you back onto your number two now, um, because yeah, you, okay. you, we've mentioned sure. number one. I interrupted you, so back onto yeah, number two. Yeah. So, okay, number two is looking at behavioural tells. So behavioural behavioural clues. Are students doing things to either avoid or cover up certain tasks? So, for instance, you know, are they? You give them certain tasks, and they start joking or playing, or they they retreat, or or, or they, they or something along those lines. Are they avoiding or covering up certain tasks? You 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 get them to do something, and they they they're hiding the paper, that that sort of thing. So, these mm -hmm. behavioural tells. So the first tell is the the discrepancy between intelligence and production. The second tell is the behavior. How do they react when you want them to do something, when they have to do something? You know, um, for instance, it could be it could be things like um, it could be yawning. It could be pushing their chair back away from a table. People notice I do that a lot when they give me some long things to read. It could be um, it, it, it could be fidgeting. It could be um, uh, it, it could be covering one eye. That's something that's quite common. It could be all sorts of things like this. So there's a behavioral tell there as well. And so that's the second thing. And the third thing is the uh, essentially the emotional response. Um, and this is something which is, is fascinating. And I, I'm really keen on getting this message out, which is that they, scientists, they have, have, have wired people up to, uh, to, to, to clever electronic boxes. And what they do is they, they wire your brain and your eyes and your muscles and your skin, and they, they, can, they can measure emotional response mm -hmm. quite easily by looking at what your retinas do and, and, and how fast you breathe and, and how much sweat you produce, that sort of thing. And they found that people with dyslexia, when faced with emotional stimuli, generally have noticeably higher emotional responses than people without dyslexia. So people with dyslexia have very keen emotional response. On the other hand, people with dyslexia generally have, um, as I've said earlier on, something called executive function. And executive function differences can often mean that they uh, that, that you can identify and regulate your emotions harder than other people's. It's harder to identify and it's harder to regulate and it's harder to reframe your emotions if you have executive function difficulties. So what you find is that people with dyslexia feel emotions more, but find it harder to deal with them. And oh, so wow. this third tell, essentially, is the emotional response to school, the emotional response to education, the emotional response to what you're asking them to do. So you've got, on the one hand, the discrepancy. 
on the other hand, <laughs> notice I've got three hands coming up. On the other <laughs> hand, you've got the uh, you've got the, the 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 if you like the the responses, the behavioural responses, and on the third hand, let's say it's a clock. On the third yeah, hand, you go. <laughs> you've got the emotional response, and that those are the three things that that are your doorway to thinking about dyslexia. Uh, that that is brilliant, and I've I've now got this image of a clock. To be my to be my doorway, the, the three hands to, to look on Excellent. each one of them. That is that is brilliant. The the clock of dyslexia is is how I will now be <laughs> looking at it when I'm I'm approaching my my classes and my students because, you know, we always as teachers that you know we have difficult students. We have students that you know are not as gifted as other students. Obviously, um, mm -hmm. students mm -hmm. that have different you know abilities and such but mm. it's it's infrequent that it will come to our minds that it could be this you know that it could be dyslexia that it, that it could be um something along these lines so having these three tells the 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 clock of dyslexia is is incredibly important for me for a start but the also alarm bells might anybody. ring with that clock yeah but exactly um yeah. so if if you know we've looked at these these three different issues or, or one or two of them have kind of popped up and and we think that one of our students could have dyslexia um mm -hmm. what's the next step from there okay so the next step is not to ask them okay i mean they might want to volunteer it but um here's a uh, here's a just a little anecdote i remember when i was about 14, 15, and I was being asked to read out aloud in English. And it was Mr. Daggett, I remember him, Mr. Daggett, one of the few teachers that I look back on fondly uh, from school. And I was asked to read out loud in English and I made some mistakes and, and everyone laughed and I went, oh, sorry, it's just dyslexia. And Mr. Daggett immediately, his eyes went to me and said, really? And you could see he was on it immediately. And I just went, no, no, I'm joking. Because I didn't think I had dyslexia because I didn't know what dyslexia was. So if you're like, it, it, chances are the child himself or herself or the student whoever that student is teenager or even adult might not know about dyslexia might not feel that they're dyslexic and they, mm -hmm. they might not have had any training or any or any diagnostic assessments themselves so and it has a kind if, of negative connotation in, in a way like it shouldn't obviously yeah. but you know if you oh. say like, like you say you were saying it as a joke oh it's the dyslexia you know you're mm -hmm. you're saying yeah uh, you know i'm I was dyslexic. laughing at dyslexia. Yeah, I was laughing exactly. at dyslexia. Yeah. And you say it's a negative connotation. This is absolutely true. This is the second reason I wouldn't uh, ask students, depending on context. So depending on the context you're in, dyslexia is looked upon as a medical condition. A lot of people, let's say very proud business, let's say a, a middle-aged businessman, very proud, will not want himself to have uh, this medical disability. Uh, um, the Bavarian state um, once described dyslexia and quite recently described dyslexia as an incurable illness. The um, uh, France, uh, you have to go to a doctor to get your dyslexia diagnosed. Um, and so there are, in Europe, uh, you may essentially be labeling yourself as having an illness. And people don't think of themselves as having an illness and illness is a very negative thing to have. In other parts of the world, it's worse than that. So let, let me just shock you for a second. I talk to teachers, specialists, diagnosticians from all over the world. 
and and you can find them on my YouTube channel, which is the YouTube forward slash Dyslexia Bites. And the, you'll the link will be this... will be in the description. So just thank you. And, and and you'll notice things such as I talked to um, a couple of people from Nigeria and, and there's kind of agreement in Nigeria that there are um, parts of Nigeria which are not quite so well off, which are not quite so what you might call economically developed, where if you have dysle- if you have a dyslexic child, it's easier to kill the child than to get what? it dealt with. Yeah, it's easier to murder the child than to have a dyslexic child because that child is is bewitched, is witchcraft in there, oh. and, and and you get children who are slaughtered, not slaughtered but killed, murdered, because of dyslexia. You go over to, for instance, South Korea. The, the, the educational pressures in South Korea are so great, so great, because they have a pressure to conform. So the pressures to succeed and to conform are so great. They have these exams at the end of the year that there is a bridge. And this, is, this, this broke my heart when I heard this. There's a bridge in South Korea. And what they've done is they've put pictures of teddy bears and animals on that bridge to stop children throwing themselves off. Oh. Is... I mean, this is this is the, the, the level of the problem. So we, we, we have this cultural issue that we have to deal with that we say, oh, well, this is what dyslexia is, phonological processing. No, it's far more than that, because if you come from, for instance, Korea and you don't conform and you can't do your exams, what do you do? There's so much pressure. So many children kill themselves. If you come from Nigeria, if you come from a small town in Nigeria, you're dyslexic. You don't want anyone to know about that. Your life is in danger. Yeah. That is, that is is absolutely brutal and incredibly shocking. Um, incredibly shocking. That's wow. Um, and and it, it leads me to to thinking about this now. My my cousin is is a teacher in the UK, um, and she mm-hmm. made a comment on on the Facebook post. Um, and and that's uh, I'm I'm just gonna try and find it here. Uh, and she was talking about um, says here educational psychs and specialist teachers won't diagnose dyslexia in Essex. You can only get private ones for hundreds of pounds. So (sighs) it feels almost like um, you have to be rich to be able to be seen as being dyslexic and then, you know, get the recognition and the support that you need. In the United Kingdom, Um, yes. Or rather in the United Kingdom. Wales, yes. In England and Wales, not so much in Scotland. But in England and Wales, absolutely, it costs a minimum of four hundred pounds. Minimum of four hundred pounds. And that's just for it assessment. to be to be recognised as as that, and you know, that's for your extra twenty minutes on the end of your test, or you know, yeah, I imagine things absolutely. are different now. But that's so that's how it is in in England now. Imagine in, in other countries where perhaps it's not as developed as, as England, and you know. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe it's I mean, just well, to, like you mentioned just, in Nigeria, and yeah, absolutely. There's no, there's no um, system of assessment. I, I know a couple of people. There's a guy called Stephen Emmanuel, who's who's an educational psychologist, who's who's working in Nigeria to try to change this. But but there is no formalized structure. There's no system in Nigeria for anything like this. And in fact, you know, uh, when you look at the figures in Nigeria, it kind of bears this out. So most people in Europe think of of dyslexia you look at the the figures for dyslexia and the majority of countries in europe put the figure at around about 10 percent of the population now 
the measurements that get you to this figure are questionable. Let me just mm -hmm. say that. But that's what most people kind of agree on. Um, you go to Nigeria and the figures are anything between 20% and 33% of the population. So they, so according to various different estimates, up to a third of the population is dyslexic. Now, this may be true or it may not, but one of the things we know is that this, this massive discrepancy, 20% to 30%, indicates that there is no standardized measurement there. So there's no way of getting yourself measured and assessed in a way that is essentially consistent across the country yeah it's 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 horrifying to think about it you know these these are the kind of basic things that that should be uh yeah. accessible to everybody you know particularly in the developed world where we have you know systems in place where you know this is just again it's it's the matthew effect isn't it you know if if you are exactly that, yeah. in an affluent society if you are an affluent member of society and you can afford to to have a diagnostic test then you'll get the support you need whereas if you can't well unlucky you're the slow one at school all of a sudden yeah and and here's where the socioeconomic context comes in with the matthew effect over a longer period of time so we know that dyslexia is inherited. We think it's probably genetically inherited. Um, we think that there are probably about five to seven genes involved in dyslexia. But regardless, we, we, we know it's inherited. Mm -hmm. If you have dyslexia, the chances are, and, and statistics and evidence shows this and bears it out, so I won't bore you with that. But if you have dyslexia, the chances are you will come out of education with fewer O-levels, GCSEs, A-levels, whatever. You won't, you won't be as highly qualified. The chances of you going to university are, are reduced. The chances of you dropping out of university, if you get there, are raised. So the people with dyslexia tend to be lower qualified than people without dyslexia. Lower qualified people generally tend to earn less. It's inherited. So what you find is that over generation upon generation upon generation, you've got low income people uh, living in essentially lower and lower income brackets so that the yeah. chances that the people with dyslexia can afford the uh, the diagnostic assessments get lower and lower and lower. Oh. And, and these are the very people we need to be helping. The very exactly. people we need to be helping because you know, if we don't help the vulnerable, what's the point? Exactly that. Um, and this goes well beyond like ELT, you know, as as we mentioned at the start, um, it goes yeah. it goes so far beyond that. It's uh, it's it's within all of our education systems. It's you know, it's with it's every teacher's responsibility in 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 my opinion to so, you know have care for their students. Absolutely. So, absolutely. So we we can do something about this, and we can easily do something about this. So there are two routes we can take, and we can do them both, or we can do just one of them. It depends how people want to sort of um, focus the resources. The first route is that not all di the only diagnostic assessments are official if you want to deal with, for instance, governments. So if I want, <clears throat> um, I was in dispute recently with the Australian government, and in order to, to show that I was dyslexic, I had to produce my report and I had to highlight the bits in the report that said, this is why Martin's failed to do what you wanted to do, essentially, you know. And, and because it is an official diagnostic assessment, they went, okay, yes, yeah, sorry, we've been communicating with you incorrectly, even though you told us you were dyslexic so many years ago. So yeah. that's the diagnostic assessment. But actually, 
education, edu educators don't need that diagnostic assessment. They just need essentially a bit of a screener. They, and there are lots of screeners online for free. And that's, so, so actually finding out whether someone may well be dyslexic isn't hard. It's not hard mm -hmm. at all. So what we can do is we can essentially give all our students some form of screener. So we're not discriminating. We're not picking out the ones we think are dyslexic. We're giving people essentially learning screeners and saying, okay, let's do this. Can you perform here? Can you perform there? We find people's strengths. We find their weaknesses. So that's the first set, first way we, we tackle it. We don't have to go down the 650 pounds for a diagnostic assessment route um, because that's almost like that's the last line of, of, of defense, essentially. Mm -hmm. The second thing is we just need to educate ourselves with what it is that, how, how dyslexic people learn. And it really isn't difficult. Um, it's just that there's so little awareness of it and so much, as you say, so much misinformation about words jumping around yeah. on a page that, that so few people know. So what we need is we need, let's, let's give them a plug, we need Bulo, this is English. You know, we need people who know how dyslexic people learn to teach. And this works with everybody. There's nothing that you can do for dyslexic people that doesn't work for other people. But there's loads that you can do for non-dyslexic people that doesn't work with dyslexic people. Exactly, exactly that. Um, and yeah, it is, it is so wonderful to see Rulo actually getting the recognition that, that he deserves and, and, you know, his team obviously deserve uh, in that. So what are some of these, these different techniques that, that teachers can use to, to teach their dyslexic students and to make learning not so awful? Um, because yeah. I can imagine it must be absolutely horrible, an absolute nightmare if, number one, you, you can't get diagnosed, but if, if, number two, you know, your teacher has an inkling or they've done some screening and, you know, maybe they then don't know exactly what to do, right? So what are some well, you great have no techniques? idea how painful education was for me, really, how painful Oof. school was. I mean, it was just agony. As I said, I was, this is, this is just a little... I don't know what, how this sounds, but just to let people know, I was the bottom of the class in almost everything at school. Um, and I was tipped for the tip. I wasn't tipped for the top. I was tipped for the tip. Well, recently I, I got my PhD. And what that shows, well, thank you very much. <laughs> a little plug for myself. What it, what it shows isn't that I'm super clever. I don't mean it like that. But what it means is that the way that people educate is clearly not appropriate. So instead of, as everybody had said when I was at school, Martin isn't a good student, actually the truth is the education system isn't a good education system. And, and because if it was a good education system, they'd have found out that I was PhD material and that have, that have allowed me to flourish. So one of the first things is just reduce the literacy content. I mean, it's as simple as that. You know, reduce the literacy content. So yeah. not reams and reams of, 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 of writing, make it more visual. Um, infographics are fantastic. Make it interactive. We've got computers, we've got, we've got mobile phones, we've got, we've got tablets, make it interactive, make it discursive. Um, allow people to visualize ideas. Make sure that when you teach, this is really key. So I, I, I'm, I'm talking about English specifically here. Did you know that people with dyslexia understand meaning faster and more deeply from morphology than people without dyslexia. That is teaching morphological awareness. If you're teaching the structure of, uh, of words, if mm -hmm. we teach how words are built, 
with prefix, suffix, um, bounded root, unbound root, that kind of thing. If we teach this, then we're, we're accessing exactly the way that dyslexic people learn. It also accesses something that we call the ventral pathways, by the way, which is about comprehension and understanding. And that's why we think that people with dyslexia really get a, quite a deep understanding of language from morphology and morphological awareness. So instead of teaching um, words by writing them out or teaching how to spell them, teach words by showing people how they're structured. And this is quite key. I, I, I've, I've come across a number of people who teach words uh, by making them remember mnemonics making okay. you remember other things. Actually, that doesn't work. That might help you remember how to spell this particular word, but it doesn't tell you how to predict how to spell the next word. And actually, mm -hmm. you're, you're overloading the memory because you're, you're getting them to remember more than one thing to remember one word. So you're getting them to remember this mnemonic to remember how to spell this word. If we can get people to understand why this word is constructed the way it is, they'll remember to spell it. It's basically yeah. giving a man a fishing rod or teaching him to fish, essentially. So and, and that works for that, that that works for everybody as well. That that like you know yes. giving mnemonic devices, you might be able to spell Mississippi, but you know how often yeah. do you need to spell Mississippi? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It, it's it's exactly that. Yeah. And, and so what we need to do is teach the structures and help people understand the structures and the connections that are inherent within language. Um, so uh, one of the things I show people is that you can you can actually visualize the English language on a, on a piece of paper very, very easily indeed. Um, so so what I do is I usually draw a circle and a triangle, equilateral triangle within that circle. And on the uh, mm -hmm. in the spaces between the the outside of the triangle and the, the outside of the circle, you've got these sort of spaces. One of them's the past, one's the present, one's, one's the future. And then where the, 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 the triangle touches the circle, you've got simple, continuous and perfect. And suddenly you can see the connections, you can see the relationships between the once you, you know, once you understand what the, the, the continuous does, or once you understand what the, the, the perfect does, you can see the connections between the present perfect, the present continuous, the past perfect, the past, the past simple, you can see the connections, and then you can start to play like turn the triangle around within this circle. So that if you're like the, 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 the perfect points to the present, you got the present perfect, it points to the past, you got the past perfect. Now, what this does is it shows people the relationships inherent within the language, and it's a visual clue. So it's a visualization of relationships and structure. And that's one way of really accessing how dyslexic people think. Ah, oh, wow, that's, that's fantastic. Um... I will definitely be trying that. And again, not just for dyslexic students, because yeah. that works for everybody. Um, yeah. You know, that's a, an approach that everybody can try. And this this step away from, you know, this the, the constant literacy content is, is incredibly, incredibly annoying and tiresome as well, I find, yeah. as an English yeah. teacher. And I, I do believe that education is, is fundamentally broken on many different levels. Um, and the fact that we're still trotting out the same rhetoric from, you know, 100 years ago is absolutely yeah. awful, especially when we do have all of these new technologies, this new information. But it still all comes down to that exam at the end of the year where you get your extra 20 yes. minutes to hopefully do yeah. a little bit better, you know. And by the way, um, this exam, the, the things that we're trying to get people to do during the year, which is learn, is a different cognitive process from what we're asking them to do at the end of the year, which is produce. Exactly that. 
exactly that. That is oh, I've been fighting that corner for so long, and here in Spain, it's even worse. Like if you've got yeah. a good memory, then you'll be good at exams, and you'll be good. You'll That's do well. Ridiculous. You'll be seen as clever. You've got a good memory. Well done. And it just yeah. oh, it yeah. makes me so angry. Yeah, absolutely. And by the way, once we know, and we do know that. If you like, English is not some monolithic thing that, that sort of objectively exists that we can somehow achieve and reach and point at. Once we know that English is a living, organic language and that we know that, that it's influenced from, from all over the world and that English, it, it, the reason it's a world language is because it's owned by the entire world. Once we realize that, then we can stop being proscriptive about how we teach. Now, this is really important. If we teach, Grammar. Let's say we teach grammar. If we teach, um, let's say, a point of grammar, prepositions. Let's, great example. Let's say we're teaching prepositions. If what we do is we teach people a rule and then expect them to apply it, that's exactly what putting pressure on working memory is. Where, because working memory is taking something and then applying it. If you like taking something from memory and applying it. If we teach rules and make, make people apply those rules, we're putting pressure on working memory, which many dyslexic people struggle with. Instead, what we need to be doing is be constructive about it rather than prescriptive about it. So we say, we, we say to people, all right, let's explore. Let's, let's, take the, 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 um, let's take the preposition over. How many phrases, how many book titles, how many song titles, how many films can we think of with the word over in them? Now let's put them all on cards. Now let's arrange these cards into categories. What do you see from these categories? What constructs can you make from this? There you go, that's your answer. And suddenly we've taught people things by engaging them, by being constructivist about it, rather than having them put pressure on working memory. And, and it's a much more interesting way of learning, let's be honest. You know, there's, there's, I, I'm gonna say it. I really hate teaching grammar. <laughs> it, it, it really does my head in, because of this ancient, archaic way of doing it of going up there. Yeah. You know, you need to write the rule on the board, and then I, I, I just don't, I don't teach it that way because it's that it doesn't work, and you're not yeah. using it in context but because then you know okay today we're doing the second conditional and now all we're mm. going to do is speak with the second conditional we're going to go around in circles if i won the lottery i would buy a car if i bought a car mm. it would be a tesla mm. if i had a you know tesla and, and it, i would yeah, yeah yeah exactly and and that is just you know this is how you teach the second conditional bam and and yeah. again i i find it infuriating um and, and, and I don't have dyslexia um, and most of my students mm. don't either. And I, I can yeah. see it's even boring and useless for them. So, <laughs> yes. you know, how many teachers stop to ask themselves whether the rules they're teaching actually make any sense? <laughs> yeah, I, I fear that, you know, the grammar of English is, is a construct that came about a long time after English existed because, <laughs> yes. you know, and, and they try and put these things into these different boxes, mm. you know, and, and mm. you know, I remember teaching C2 a little while back and, and I had to teach the subjunctive in English and I was just like, but <laughs> what do, do you mean subjunctive in English? Like, mean, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't think there is. And basically they'd found eight phrases and they were like, Ooh, they use this structure. <laughs> yes. So here's a unit for the book. Let's do the subjunctive. Yeah, and I yeah. just went in there and I said to my Spanish students, um, I can't, I, I don't know what this is. I don't know what the subjunctive is. I can't teach it to you because 
I've never learned it. What we are going to yeah. do, we're going to take these eight phrases and we're going to see how to use them in context. You know, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. little yeah. did I know that they were all well aware of these phrases. You know, there you go. That was one of the phrases from the subjunctive. Um, be that as it may is another one. Um, so, yeah, they were, you know, these were these phrases that kind of came in. And, and yeah, I had to, um, I figured out a way of going around it. But again, this is just, um, these are just ways of teaching and, and ways of, of, of getting yeah. around the, these boring yeah. constructs that, again, are probably more suitable for, for neurodivergent students. Yeah, they are. I mean, so let's, let's go back to something that's like, what is it, B1 or something? You're teaching the present perfect. How many people have taught the present perfect by saying, well, the, present, the past simple is when it's finished and the present perfect is still happening or something along those lines. And you think, all right, let's, let's come up with some sentences for this. Okay, so um, I was in Australia in 1997. I've been to Australia. Well, which one's still happening? Which one's still true? They're neither still happening, they're both still true. So you get students going, what's the difference? And if you teach this damned rule, it confuses people. It just confuses yeah. people. Because then, then you have to come in and say, well, it's not it all the time. In the future. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I voted Liberal Democrat means I don't vote it at the moment. It means it's ended, you know? So, yeah. so what we're doing is we're teaching people things that don't make any sense. And then, so this, first of all, the rule is senseless, and then they've got to remember it, then they've got to apply it. This is not the way to teach. It's certainly not the way to teach neurodiverse students. It's not the way to teach dyslexic students. We need to be constructivist about it. We need to start being more visual about it. We need to be discursive about it. Um, we need to be less literate about it, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely. Um, we, we got a lovely message from from Katrina on, on the, the Facebook um group and and she's she's currently working she's in Argentina um and and she's she's mentioned that she's been uh, an EFL teacher for some decades and she's tried out a million techniques and seen quite a few, a few students struggle through lack of self-confidence and a sense of helplessness the key the one thing that can make a change is love she says most yeah. neurodivergent students feel inadequate inadequate and yes. they're often treated as such so by the time yeah. they get to EFL, they're so disheartened and it just becomes almost impossible for them. And she says to yeah. be a shelter and to be a haven for them, you know, and be there to support those students. Katrina, I, I just, just to, to speak directly to Katrina, if I'd had a, a teacher when I was at school who'd shown me love rather than judgment, I, I, wouldn't have, I wouldn't have found school as traumatic as I found it. And, and it wouldn't affect me as negatively as it does now. I mean, I was teaching at a, a university in, in Bavaria recently and was speaking to somebody else who was teaching at a different university in Bavaria, telling her how her lessons were proper and all I was doing was playing games. And, and, and that kind of, okay, I was joking, but it comes through that still, I don't think that I'm worth it. I don't think that I deserve it. And that, that comes through in my life, even now. And if I'd had teachers such as Katrina, um, it wouldn't have. It wouldn't have done. I wouldn't have found myself looking so negatively at myself, and I wouldn't have allowed others to treat me so negatively. Yeah. And this is it's deep inside us. Um, she she asked a few questions after that. Um, one of them was, "Do we inform the parents um, if they don't already know? Um, won't it lower their expectations of their student?" Um, so, I, fundamentally, I think it's something that you know we should definitely speak to parents about if we think there's a chance that you know a student might be 
dyslexic. Um, yeah, again, I don't I mean, think it's, that's it's something we can hide. It's it's a cultural issue. So you know, if if dyslexia is looked upon as 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 something shameful, then how do we broach that subject? And that's that's something. So should we is is a normative question, and it seems almost universal. But I mean, let, let's say I was teaching, I was teaching someone in Abuja in in in, in Nigeria. Should I t- tell their their parents? I don't know. To be honest with you, I don't know. Um, uh, yeah. Generally, I would say yes, I'd agree with you. Generally, I'd agree and say, yeah, I think we should. I think the more understanding we have of what's going on, as long as when we say to somebody, by the way, I think your, your daughter's dyslexic or I think your son's dyslexic, if we then unpack that and say, look, it's not all negative, there's some positives, they'll, they'll, they'll maybe struggle like this, but that's because I'm teaching them badly. So if I teach them better, they won't struggle. And, and if we unpack it in this kind of more positive way, rather than essentially giving you know giving people this sort of you, you've got malaria of the brain sort of sort of idea of what dyslexia <laughs> is then you know it's uh, i think yeah so if we if we do out somebody and that's got to be with the the with the consent of the child or, or the student whoever that is if we do out people then we've got to do it in such a way that's culturally sensitive and doesn't essentially label that person as 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 broken uh, brilliant. Um, that is, that is really, yeah, you do have to consider where, where they are and, and particularly, yeah, does, you have to speak to the student first, obviously it's not, yeah. you know, it's not fair to, to kind of go behind their back with, with anything really, you know, it, you know, it's, it's not okay. It, in any respect, you should speak to students first. Um, the next question she had was, do we simply do we differentiate or simply create dyslexia a dyslexia friendly lesson which is bound to appeal to all students? Um, I think the answer to that is yes, um, and that, that's that's both of them. So one of the things that really helps with dyslexia friendly lessons is differentiation, and that's because everybody has different everybody learns differently. Um, there's a, a guy called um, oh I've forgotten his name for a second. Um, Professor Elliot, Professor Joe Elliot of the University of Durham, who believes there's no such thing as dyslexia. And the reason he argues that is that lots of dyslexic people are different. And he, he therefore says, well, because they're all different, it's not one thing. He's wrong about that. And there are all sorts of reasons we can say he's wrong about that. But what we know is that lots of dyslexic people will manifest their dyslexia differently. And so yeah. earlier on, let's go back to something you asked earlier, what is dyslexia? I mean, one of the things is once we, once we start to think about dyslexia, we need to start listening to the, the, the experiences of the, of the students rather than labeling them. Because as soon as we label them, we, we restrict ourselves and we restrict them. Each student will have a different experience and will have different, different strengths, different weaknesses, different interests. And so I think this idea of, of creating a class that's friendly for all um, is the most important thing, but that can include differentiation. So I, I don't think that, that that one excludes the other. Okay. Um, now the next one. Um, the next question is, is there a search on whether flipped learning works better for dyslexic students or the more traditional approach? Um, there's no specific research on this, but what I would do is I would direct you to a video called the called the child sent the child driven education or the child center. I think it's the child driven education, not the child centered education by mm-hmm. a man called Sugata Mitra. 
And it was for a while one of those real super popular TED Talks. Um, and it's a fascinating, fascinating um, talk. And, and it's evidence-based and it's, it's published in peer-reviewed um, papers. Essentially, what he's doing is he's basically putting education in the hands of the children. He's making it collaborative and he's making it explorative, which is great for dyslexic learners. And, mm -hmm. and the teacher takes on the role as essentially mentor, as guide, as facilitator. Now, this fits perfectly with the, the educational philosophies of, of Dewey, Parker, Montessori, these people, not Steiner so much, but Dewey, Parker, Montessori, that the, the people I, I have a, a lot of love for. And the idea that the teacher is there as the guide, the facilitator, the person who, who enables, but also the person who, who sets boundaries. And uh, this idea of flipped education fits very nicely into that. So, um, yeah, yeah I, I don't know of any, of, of any research about flipped education, but I, I, but I do know of research into um, this particular kind of flipped education that Sagata Mitra talks about, and it fits exactly with what dyslexic students tend to go for and tend to like. So although the, the, the actual research isn't there, I think that we can sort of we can we can extrapolate from the research that is there and say yes flipped education generally works quite well yeah it's, it's certainly you know ha handing the power over as it were is you know and, and letting people uh, take their own time um yeah. to kind of get to their goals is, is a really useful one now before we continue um i know you've got you've got to shoot off we've got a, a quick two minute break will you be able to hang around for the last 15 minutes as well of course no problem at all oh. Yes, I'm so excited. Excellent. <laughs> so we're going to shoot off for a two minute break and then we'll be back very, very shortly. This episode of Teachers Talk Radio has been made possible with support from Witherslack Group, the UK's leading provider of SEN education and care. They're here to support you, too, through an ever-growing offer of free resources, including webinars, podcasts, articles, and events aimed at supporting teaching professionals like you. Visit their website at www.weatherslackgroup.co.uk to find out more. Imagine a world where you were free to focus on sparking curiosity in your students and giving them access to the awe and wonder of learning. A world where you were supported to deliver a truly personalised education to help all your learners achieve their potential. No need to imagine it, because that's exactly what the Oxford Smart Curriculum Service delivers. Seamlessly integrating curriculum, resources, assessment, next steps and professional development, every component of Oxford Smart is connected and working to provide you with a uniquely coherent and responsive service that empowers you and your students with transformational effect. The Oxford Smart Curriculum Service. When everything connects, anything is possible. Stevewoods.co.uk for educational support in IT and computer science. Coming up, I'm delivering a number of courses. Learn to program in Python is a free one-hour course designed to start you on your way into Python coding. Everything works in a browser, so there's nothing to install beforehand. Join me remotely to learn the basics on Wednesday the 8th of June, 4 o'clock to 5 o'clock. Visit stevewoods.co.uk to start your journey. Are you a state school teacher in England? Why not be a hero this half-term and join me for two days and receive up to 1,360 £60 in bursary. Terms and conditions apply. Find out more at stevewoods.co.uk. If you're listening to this, 
then we know we share one thing in common. A passion for the type of outstanding education that every child deserves. That's what makes us the leading provider of specialist education and care. We need people like you to help us achieve even more. With us, you'll be given all the resources and support you need, offered a clear path to career progression, and be rewarded with some of the best salaries and benefits the industry has to offer. We are with a Slack group. If you'd like to find out more, we'd love to hear from you. Visit www.withaslackgroup.co.uk forward slash careers and be part of our future. So we are back in for the the last 14 minutes. Um, Martin, I've got more questions. So many questions. Can you hear me? Hello, Martin. Can you I hear can me? hear you. Can you hear me? Oh, dear. Oh, um, yes, I, I can. can. I can. Again. Oh, excellent. You don't, <laughs> you don't need to be frightened at all. Don't worry. They're, they're, they're nice questions. Um, <laughs> Lovely. What's your favorite color? <laughs> Green. No, blue. Ah. <laughs> ah, already confused. <laughs> so um, that, that, they, that wasn't the question. Um, I just thought I'd throw that one in there. Nice, easy one. Um, so the, the next one is all about um, fonts. Uh, and and things like that again is another one uh uh katrina has got uh, has mm, asked and mm, uh, she mm, said she mm, tries mm. using a font called open dyslexic in her word yeah. documents yeah. but the students are used to their school books and they found it a bit strange so yeah. are there any other changes that that we can make in our documents yeah. like you yeah. know like line spacing and gray backgrounds yeah. and stuff yeah. like that yeah yeah so the first thing to remember is that um there is a number of specialist fonts out there, Open Dyslexic, Dyslexie, Silexiad, which just seems like a Mickey take, to be honest with you. Um, there's, 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 there's quite a few of them. And uh, if you go online, they're fairly easy to find. There's one that's, um, that's become quite, um, quite popular on social media recently called Bionic Reading, where the, 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 the first couple of letters of, of each word are highlighted in bold and the rest of them aren't. Generally speaking, um, the research shows that they're not better than other fonts. Um, they've been marketed as being better than other fonts, but they aren't better than other fonts. The thing that makes them better, where they, where they succeed and other fonts don't, is that A, they're larger, B, the spacing between the fonts, the spacing between the letters is slightly wider, and C, the spacing between the lines is slightly wider. Now, this is something we can do anyway. Most mm -hmm. Microsoft Word or, or PowerPoint, or I guess if you use, Apple, they'll have similar, whatever, whatever it is. Uh, most packages have, um, have the ability to space fonts. They have the ability to make fonts bigger and smaller. They have the ability to space lines. Uh, and that's what you need to do. The type of font you want to use in general, um, and this is, again, the research tends to back this up, is what they call humanist fonts. Now, humanist fonts are a type of sans-serif font, but they're not the only type of sans-serif font. So um, let's contrast them with Gothic, for instance. Mm -hmm. Gothic is sans serif, uh, and Gothic fonts are characterized by upwards, downwards, vertical strokes and circles. So generally speaking, a C is a circle with a gap in it. A D is a C with a vertical stroke. A P is a D upside down. Uh -huh. Or is that a Q? B, whatever, anyway, but yeah. Um, uh, and, and they all look very similar. Well, because they look quite similar, People who have got sequencing issues might be able to confuse P's and Q's and B's and D's. So um, humanist fonts tend to be slightly more 
as it were, softer, a little, little maybe a little bit curved. Okay. And one of the things that one of the things that helps you recognize a humanist font is if you begin um, with a, a capital letter I, and then you put an L after it. So you have a word like ill or illegitimate or something yeah. like that. The L will be slightly taller than the I. And so the, there is this difference between um, the, the vertical letters. Uh, and so I would always begin with a humanist font. My favorite is Leela Wadi, L-E-E-L-A-W-A-D-E-E, -E -E -E, Leela Wadi. Um, but it's, it's not the only one. Calibra is a decent one. Yeah. Find the font that you like the best. Find the font that the students like the best. Explore with the students because this is learning. This is great. There's nothing. You're not wasting time when you're exploring which fonts people like. You're actually making time. So yeah, explore which fonts people like. Give them an option. Um, space them out. Make them bigger. Make them smaller. Um, play around with the color scheme with the uh, maybe um, something like 80% gray rather than black and white. 80% gray and white. Or maybe have a, a faint blue background if you want that kind of thing. Play around. Decide what people feel comfortable with. Some fantastic advice there. Um, okay, so the next question is, at what age can we kind of start to, to, to look for these, these signs? Because uh, that we mentioned earlier, the, the clock, of course. Um, at, at what age is, is a good time to start looking? Because as soon as you said the B's and the D's and the, the P's and the Q's, it, it mm -hmm. took me back to when my, my daughter was starting to write. You know when so when she was sort of yeah. about around five you know when she was starting to, yeah. to to read and stuff so when she was around five or six you know she would make those you know she would get confused between those letters all the time yeah, yeah. um so so five is an age yeah um you can actually go back you can start at about three actually um so wow. three is a time that you can start to do it because you, remember dyslexia isn't only a literacy issue and and some people describe dyslexia in purely literacy terms others don't but where dyslexia is more than a literacy issue it's also got things like working memory it's got rapid naming and this is the thing rapid naming so you know you can you can see whether a, a whether a very young child can can name a cow picture of a cow or a picture of a dog or something quickly or or, or whether they get that wrong you can see whether you can hear whether a, a child has problems um, with nonsense words, pronouncing nonsense words. You can hear when a child's learning to speak, are they missing out certain sounds or certain certain letters, that sort of thing. So actually from about three years old, that's the probably the earliest time we think at the moment that you can start to detect dyslexia. Um, wow. but certainly from 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 primary age, certainly from from then. Yeah, because obviously any time before three, you don't have the the advantage exactly. of, of speech, you know, that's, yeah. That's, yeah. I guess yeah. that's kind of important. And, you know, obviously, on not the literary side of things on the, the speech recognition side mm -hmm. of things, someone needs to be able to speak if you're if you're going to be able to, yeah. to, to diagnose um, dyslexia. So yes, yeah, yeah. three, yeah. I, I had no idea. I thought it would be, you know, I, you know, in my, in my blinding ignorance, obviously, I thought it would be around sort of five, six, maybe even seven That's not ignorant not at all there are certain things, countries so. that there are certain countries that won't diagnose dyslexia until you're about 12 or 13 believe it or not but, so again this is, we're talking about elt we're talking about international teaching internationally if you find yourself in one of these countries you think blimey that's uh that that's quite that's quite a shock 
that's crazy. nine it's years into their teaching. You know, they, the yeah. students start at, at, at three here. If they can't be diagnosed until they're 12, that's nine years of punishment yeah. they've gone through. Yeah, they've already lost so much. They've already lost so much. Like primary school is when is the time in Spain anyway that that you you can still just about enjoy yourself. You know, by the time you get to secondary school, it, it's awful. You know, it yeah. is endless punishing exam after exam after studying after exam. Yeah. It's absolutely awful. I mean, my daughter, as I mentioned, she's almost nine. She's in uh, year three. Um, and she has endless exams. You know, she came home today and she did an hour and a half of homework for, for maths and English. Um, and this is in year three. You know, she's been doing yeah, exams horrible, since last it? year. And it's just the, the way that it is. You know, there's yeah. this classic phrase of, you know, it's how it's always been done. Something yeah. That, the worst phrase in the world, in my opinion, it's how it's always been done or we've always done it that way. Um, yeah. And, and what, sorry. Yeah. No, no. Go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to ask, I was going to say, I, I, I speak to a lot of teachers um, and I, we talk about the kinds of changes that can be made, little changes. So differentiation, more visualization, reduce the literacy, make, th make, make connections more, become constructive, um, create a, a classroom where you're not just sitting in rows, where you're sitting around looking at each other like a lot of ELT is. And, and we, we have a look at the barriers to these changes. And, and one of the barriers is this attitude that this is difficult. Change is difficult. And then I say, well, okay, let's explore that. Let's, let's take that sentence, change is difficult, and let's finish the sentence. Because what usually the sentence is usually change is difficult for us. And as soon as education becomes what's easiest for us teachers, then we've got it wrong. So oh, you feel like so change right. might be difficult for us, but it's easy for the students. And so that's, that's what we're going to concentrate on. Oh, that is again an, another like fantastic point. Like this is, this has been like without a doubt my most enlightening um, teachers talk radio episode that that I've ever had. I've I've had some wonderful guests in the past. Don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to uh, cast any aspersions. My guests have all been fantastic, but I have learned so much today. Um, and so much of what you've said, um, particularly that one about change is difficult at the end there. Like. In terms of education, what we need to be doing is embracing change. We need to be those ones. We need to we need to be that change. We need to make those differences in whatever we're teaching. You know, whether we're um, ELT teachers. And the great thing about being an ELT teacher is it's so malleable. It's so flexible. We have so much ability to to do what we want to do in class. You know, we we can do whatever we want. Pretty much, there are you know there yeah. are obviously syllabi that we have to go by there are textbooks but we have that freedom we don't have the national curriculum to adhere to we have all these yeah these yeah. freedoms within our class and we often have reduced numbers of students as well so you know this idea well, of you, you you say that and yet the, I, i've been to a number of elt schools which i would never mention but a number of elt schools whose response to things like well we've got these new methodologies not new but we've got these methodologies that we know help dyslexic dyslexic learners whose response is yeah but you know we've got paying students and they don't want to you know they, they've paid for this course and they don't want us to change because of these slow slow others you know and you think wow so a lot Gosh. of people are actually they're chasing the dollars in this respect they're chasing the dollars you've got if you've if you've got a school 
and you've got paying students and a lot of the LT schools are paying students and these paying students expect a particular kind of curriculum, then the number of schools who will stick with that curriculum because they're scared to upset the paymasters are shocking, absolutely yeah. shocking. It's absolutely that. Like, and the, and, 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 and unless yeah. they can, they can yeah. get some earnings by saying, you know, we have this dyslexic approach. If they're going to earn more money from that, then they might take yeah. it up. It's the same in yeah. terms of sustainability. If they can like show, yes. look, we're, we're being more sustainable. We're trying to save the planet. If they can make money off that, then often they mm. will. If they can't, then that's, yeah. that's me wiping my hands yeah. up, by the way. And, 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 and to show that actually everybody learns when everybody learns rather than some people learn when some people learn you know that everybody learns when everybody learns so everybody in the classroom will benefit from everyone in the classroom learning uh, of course absolutely they will. Uh, and, and for, for this idea that that actually no some people are paying for a, for a curriculum they're paying for a syllabus they're paying to go through life or headway or whatever the book is they're paying to go through that and that's what they're damned well gonna get that's a terrible terrible way of doing doing things and i'm not casting dispersions on on life or headway of course of course i'm not um in case the lawyers are listening <laughs> I, I, but i am saying that you know an adherence to those things as though these these as it were these aids to teaching become the prisons of teaching um, yeah. uh, it's something we need to be very careful of. As you said earlier on, change is something we need to embrace. I've mentioned him before. There's a, a, an educational philosopher, in fact, a, a broader philosopher than that, but an educational philosopher called John Dewey. Check him out. He's a genius. And he once said that if we teach today's students for our yesterdays, we rob them of their tomorrow. And that's such an important thing to remember. Yeah. It absolutely is. Um, and on that note, like that is that is the end of the show. I can't believe it. Um, I could probably sit here for another three or four hours talking to you, Martin. Um, it's it as I mentioned before, it's been incredibly enlightening. It's it's been wonderful to have you on. I'm gonna go and check out John Dewey. Um mm, because do, do. because he sounds like a, a very bright person. So thank you so much, Martin, for your for your time, for your insight. Um, and That's yeah, I'll put in the I'll put in the, the description box the um, Dyslexia Bytes uh, YouTube channel. Um, obviously, you're on Twitter as well. Um, yeah, yeah. Is there yeah. anywhere else people can find you? Yeah, you can find me on um, you, my website is dyslexiabytes.org and bytes is B-Y-T-E-S. So dyslexiabytes.org. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Dyslexia Bytes or Bytes Dyslexia, I think it is. Uh, I'm on Instagram on Dyslexiagram, um, uh, which I, I, I couldn't believe no one had taken that hashtag. So I'm on Twitter on Dyslexiagram. Um, I'm on LinkedIn as Martin Bloomfield. And uh, yeah, as, you, as, as I've said, I'm on uh, YouTube, uh, www.youtube.com forward slash Dyslexia Bytes. Brilliant. Thank you so much for your time today. It's been an absolute pleasure. It's been a real pleasure chatting to you. Thanks so much. Cheers. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in and listening. We'll be back next week uh, with more fun at twilight. Hopefully, I'll be. it'll be a bit more twilighty, although obviously it won't because we're getting closer to that uh, midsummer's day, night thing. Anyway, I'll speak to you all next week. Cheers. 
You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.